Welcome to another episode of the Criminal Law Department Presents podcast, a production of the Criminal Law Department at the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School in Charlottesville, Virginia. Every two weeks, we release a new episode. Today, we're going to have a conversation about a recent opinion from the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces. Please note that these episodes may contain facts and circumstances surrounding criminal trials. Listener discretion is advised. All rise. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. The Honorable United States Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces is now open and in session. God save the United States of America and this honorable Welcome to another episode of CAF Chat. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Dave Seagraves, Marine Corps, and with me is Major Dustin Morgan. Today we're going to talk about the case of United States versus Senior Airman Witt. It's an interesting case that started in 2005 and has now just come to a final resolution in 2023. Dustin, you did the deep dive into this case and its history. For the listeners, what would you say this case is about? Well, sir, I think at its core, this is a case about sentencing argument, and more importantly, it's a case about prejudice and how the appellate courts will evaluate an improper sentencing argument. Very well. Can you tell the, the listeners a, a few of the facts about this case? Sure. So as you mentioned, sir, um, this case goes all the way back to 2005. So in that year, appellant was convicted of the murder of senior airman A.S., his wife J.S., and the attempted murder of senior airman J.K. So factually, appellant and the couple were friends until he attempted to kiss J.S., J.S. told her husband about Appellant's actions at a get-together on the evening of 4 July 2004. So after being told by his wife about the attempted kiss, Senior Airman A.S. and his friend, Senior Airman J.K., called the Appellant several times to confront him about the attempted kiss, as well as to threaten to tell his leadership about an alleged affair the Appellant was having with an officer's wife. So after these phone calls, the Appellant changed into his battle dress uniform, BDUs as we referred to them back then, and drove to A.S.'s on-post residence where A.S., J.S., and J.K. were located. So at this point, Appellant waited outside their home for over two hours before he confronted them. In the process, he stabbed all three of them. So Senior Airman A.S. and J.S. unfortunately died from their injuries, and Senior Airman J.K. suffered extensive injuries, required multiple surgeries and hospital stays. All right, so we have Wit has a disagreement with these folks after, you know, coming on to a wife, uh, you know, gets angry puts on his BDUs or, or camis for, for the listeners that aren't, aren't experienced with the, the military, you know, grabs a combat knife, uh, drives over to their house, waits two hours, and then premeditatedly goes there and viciously stabs uh, both the husband, the wife, and a friend. I mean, also, I think listening to the facts, he also uh, broke her arm before he killed her. Right. If you read the record, sir, it's a, it's a pretty vicious crime. Um, he stabs each of the victims multiple times, um, hunts them down in different parts of the home and even outside. Um, and continues to do so as they crawl away. Um, so it's a pretty vicious crime like the facts kind of lay out. All right. So that's that happened for July 2004. Then in October 2005 to get to trial. That's that's super fast for a capital case. Fair? Uh, yes, sir. Super fast. Okay. So 2005, October, they have the trial. What happens there? So in October 2005, the appellant was initially convicted and sentenced to death. Um, so what followed is a pretty extensive and complicated appellate history, which ultimately resulted in the appellant receiving a new sentencing hearing um, due to his defense counsel's ineffectiveness during the pre-sentencing pre- proceedings. Initially, what they found is that the defense counsel did a poor job of eliciting a, car, a motorcycle accident they had a few months prior to the 4 July 2004 instances. Um, and their failure to do that resulted in him getting a rehearing on sentence. And that, that motorcycle injury 
you know, that there's evidence that, that they caused a traumatic brain injury. Um, and fair to say, you know, maybe hard to catch as much back in 2005 because we didn't have as much experience with traumatic brain injury. But, you know, obviously now today we know the effects of traumatic brain injury and how it can affect you. Yeah, correct. And I, it was just a failure to investigate that in total that the appellate court found. So they didn't order brain scans. They didn't really do any kind of extensive testing. They had one witness that talked about how his behavior changed post-accident, but didn't delve deep enough into that. And because of the higher standard that the appellate courts view capital cases with, they just said that wasn't effective and ordered a rehearing at that okay. point. So they go back to the rehearing. Yeah, but at that point, appellant was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. And this is where the issues arise for, for our purposes here. So during sentencing argument, the trial counsel asked the panel variations of the following questions. So he asked, what will you stand for? Where will you draw the line? What risk will you assume on someone else's behalf? And if the panel wouldn't sentence appellant to death in this case, when would they ever do so? So trial counsel not only made these comments once or twice, he made them over 70 times, and he did so while displaying these comments on PowerPoint slides that contained the same exact questions that he was asking. Additionally, throughout his argument, trial counsel unequivocally requested the panel return a sentence of death. So appellant, after being sentenced to life without the possibility of parole, again appealed to the Air Force Court of Criminal Appeals, who ultimately upheld his sentence, finding that the trial counsel's argument was error, but that the appellant was not prejudiced. Appellant then appealed to CAF, who certified the issue that we'll discuss in the following minutes. Okay, so you know, trial counsel makes all kinds of inflammatory, improper statements 70 times over a two-hour sentencing argument. Put them up on, on PowerPoint as well. Um, and so, again, uh, appeals, and ultimately we get to CAF, and what issue did they grant? Sure. So it's a little bit of a complicated one and a long one, but they kind of lay out the facts a little bit in the issue. So it's during the sentencing proceedings, the trial counsel urged the panel members to consider how the sentence they imposed would reflect on them personally and professionally and suggested that the members would be responsible for any harm appellant committed in the future. So they do a good job of setting the stage there. And then they ask, did the trial counsel's sentencing argument constitute prosecutorial misconduct that warrants relief? And warranting relief is going to lead us to the whole idea of prejudice. Correct. Yes, sir. Because that's an important piece um, in any kind of prosecutorial misconduct or sentencing question. Okay. So so what standard are they using to, to judge this? So the standard goes back to a case from United States versus Fletcher, which is a CAF case from 2005. And assessing prejudice in cases of prosecutorial misconduct, they're looking at three factors, really. So it's one, the severity of the misconduct, two, the measures adopted to cure the misconduct, and three, the weight of the evidence supporting the conviction. And in Fletcher, they made no determination about which factor itself to give weight to. But but later, in United States versus Halpin, the court found that the third factor can be so overwhelmingly in favor of the government that that in and of itself can be sufficient to establish no prejudice in the case. And it's interesting because because uh, Fletcher was actually talking about prosecutorial misconduct in the argument uh, for findings. But the, the court, CAF here, said that this rule applies to both prosecutorial misconduct during findings and sentencing arguments. That's right. They've borrowed a they've borrowed a test from the merits portion of the trial and interposed that into the pre-sentencing portion. So it's it's we'll have a discussion about how that may or may not fit well, but that's the state that's the standard for now. Very well. So what else did they talk about here? So really the majority spends almost the entire opinion talking about prejudice. So what the court really hangs its hat on and what the majority hangs its hat on is here as was the case in Halpin 
they found that the evidence was so overwhelming and so strong in favor of the government that there's enough to establish a lack of prejudice in and of itself. So the egregious nature of the crimes, the fact that the government asked for a death penalty several times and wasn't given it, and the fact that the panel came back unanimously in their decision to give life without the possibility of parole, all of that weighed so strongly in favor that they just found no prejudice at that point. So breaking it down, the the viciousness of the crime, I mean, this is premeditated murder and attempted premeditated murder of the, of the third victim. Uh, so that, that limits the court to what, you know, what they can do anyways, as far as like uh, the baseline court, the, the sentence. That's right. Yes, sir. So where, as in a normal sentencing proceeding, you'd have kind of the whole range from no punishment all the way to a maximum, the maximum possible punishment here, because premeditated murder carries a mandatory minimum. The panel was left with only three decisions, like they could have given the death penalty they could have given life without the possibility of parole. They could have given life with the possibility of parole. And that's it. I mean, along with the reduction and the forfeitures and the discharge, of course. Sure. No, doesn't really matter compared to the other three. <laughs> right. Yes, uh, so here, I mean, I think they looked They looked at you know, the first case, the, the, the first time he was sentenced, he got death. And then this you know, trial counsel on the rehearing makes this 70-time misconduct, uh, laden two-hour sentencing argument, requesting death, 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 death. Uh, but ultimately, panel says, no, life without parole. And so maybe the court says, well, you, you did all these horrible things asking for a certain outcome. You didn't get it. So that kind of shows it didn't prejudice the appellant. Yeah, they, they spend a lot of time. Well, not a lot of time. They spend some time looking at whether or not appellant uh, the trial counsel's argument hit. And it obviously didn't in their eyes because none of them voted for the death penalty. It's interesting. If you dig back into the, the CCA's opinion, they know pretty extensively um, that the panel came back unanimously for life without the possibility of parole. They went so far as to cross out what you'd normally see in one of the pre-sentencing worksheets that it was um, re- the decision was reached by a three-fourths decision. They crossed that out and put unanimous on the sentencing worksheet itself. So they clearly indicated that they all agreed to give life without the possibility of parole. In the process of doing that, they repudiated what the government was asking for. So his arguments, while impermissible, were ineffective, potentially. Sure. And just to go back there, uh, for people not uh, acclimated to the military court system, uh, we don't require a unanimous decision, uh, only three-fourths. Except for the death penalty, yes, sir. Um, so they would have had to be unanimous with death here, um, but for any other punishment, three-fourths concurrence is what's required. So it's a pretty strong statement to cross out the three-fourths and say, no kidding, unanimous. We, we reject your argument. Yes, sir. It's a very strong statement on, on the part of the panel. So the facts here really kind of drive uh, the decision. Right. The fact that he murdered two people, as you said before, that he tried to murder a third and not leave any witnesses, that he confessed the viciousness of the crime, that all lended to showing that there was no prejudice here. The strength of the government's case was just so strong to override the government's arguments as impermissible as they were. Okay. So I think we've kind of hinted at it, but what's the result of this case? So ultimately, the CAF upheld the CCA's decision and upheld the sentence in the process. So the life without the possibility of parole will stand by the majority's opinion. Very well. So I think uh, it's time to help out the practitioners uh, out there. Uh, what, what are some things that practitioners can take from this case? Yeah, I, I think it's important to look at this case in, in, in two different ways. So the first is as a government counsel, you need to be careful about the way you're arguing especially when the facts lend themselves to building your sentencing argument for you. 
the CAF and the CCAs themselves, uh, they've really shown time and time again that there are areas you just can't wade into. You can't ask the, the panel to put themselves in someone else's shoes. We all know that. You can't ask them to think about their careers or their promotion opportunities. That just reeks too much like UCI. It's it's the greatest evil that the military justice system is looking to avoid. You can't ask them to think about uh, influences that aren't readily available through RCM 1001 and through the sentencing principles. You have to stick to the things that are outlined in the RCMs and the military judges bench book. It gives you a playbook. Just stick to it. I mean, in essence, uh, <clears throat> if, if you're wondering, just to be like Joe Friday, just the facts, ma'am. Uh, just, just argue the facts of the case, the evidence in the case. Uh, I think we we direct everyone to uh, you know U.S. v. Fletcher, the sixty-two MJ one seventy-five. It's a very good case study, you know, for argument by government in, in what pitfalls to avoid. Uh, I, I think you know, speaking as former trial counsel, we we can empathize with with young you know prosecutors out there. Uh, you spend innumerable hours working on a case, especially if you have victims. You you want to get justice for them, but you have to. You have to guard against losing your objectivity. Uh, there's a chance to get too close, and, and, and you have to keep that, that kind of clinicalness uh, about you, um, you know, the objectivity. And, you know, the, also there's a, a little bit of a, a risk of a, some hubris, of getting some pride for the, the level of punishment you can get from somebody. Again, we need to remind all of our prosecutors we are supposed to be ministers of justice. Yeah, understandable here. I mean, hard-fought case lasted years and years and years you're seeking the ultimate punishment um but still you all like you said sir you need to maintain your objectivity and stay within the lines now what what can our trial defense services and defense services organization folks what can they take from this case yeah so i think that the key takeaway here for the defense bar is to object and keep objecting it didn't play a role here but the opinion was clear to point out that defense counsel didn't object over the course of these 70 times or the trial counsel is making impermissible arguments so that dropped the the review to plain error. That could have played an important role in the appellate process, but for the egregious facts. So you have to place your objections on the record. And that's interesting uh, because you know it's, it's kind of a, a custom or in courtesy of litigators to generally not object uh, during openings and closings. You know you, you have to really step over the line, and so we kind of have that that reticence uh, to object. But I think it, you're very much right, Dustin, that. that we keep hearing from CAF and the courts that, that no, you need to object to these things. Uh, I think it was uh, Justice Sparks' uh, dissent in Norwood where he's talking about where you know we have to have faith in, in our litigators uh, to be able to litigate their cases and make decisions and, and to object. It's, a, it's almost like uh, in, in sports where you see refs that, that will, quote unquote, let the players play uh, and kind of let things go. You know, here, again, if you want to get prejudice, you better object. Yeah, it's hard to do. Like you said, it definitely takes a lot to stand up during a counsel's closing argument or a sentencing argument, interrupt them and object, especially with the fear that you lose and they just say the statement again and potentially having more effect with the panel. But you ultimately have a duty to your client to make sure that their rights are being preserved. So that duty has to outweigh any trepidation you have to look foolish. Very good. Well, Dustin, I think we're coming to a close here. Any last thoughts? No, this is a long case. Um, interesting. I think it has some good lessons out there for sentencing arguments and what not to do. Thank you for listening, folks. Uh, we hope to see you for another episode of CAFJ.
Thanks for joining us today for another episode of the Criminal Law Department Presents podcast. If anything you heard sparked a thought, we'd love to connect with you. Your comments help us create better future content for the field or the fleet. Reach out to us on Facebook or Instagram. The information can be found in the show notes for today's episode. The views expressed in today's podcast are those of the presenters and not necessarily the Judge Advocate General's or the Department of the Army or the Department of Defense. Thanks, counsel, for both sides. And the court will stand in recess until further order of the court.